0: Why do we send loving-kindness to our dead parents? Our parents are our closest connection in this life and many people don't seem to be able to have that relationship in order before the parents die so the only thing to do is to get it in order after they die the uh, loving kindness that we send to our parents is in order to clear out any obstacles that we have in the heart that we actually have that feeling of connectedness togetherness Lovingness, gratitude, friendship for our parents so that we don't have any kind of misgivings or ill will left over. Whether they actually are able to experience any of those feelings, that's a mute question. It's for our own purification. And the more we can purify, the easier it is for us to have loving feelings for everyone, eventually. So if our parents are no longer alive, we have to use what is available. If they're still alive, of course, it's even better. Because then we can not only do it in a meditation, but we can actually manifest it when we see them, when we talk to them make an attempt and an effort to show them that we are appreciating all the things they did for us, particularly when we were too small and incapable of doing anything for ourselves. So if they're still alive, that's even better to show that. But if not, that's the only thing we can do. The basic method of meditation that I have been taught examines the arising and passing of phenomena using the breath as an anchor and noting this process. It would appear to be a more active method than yours. I don't have any methods. They're all the Buddha's methods which involves concentration on a single object, the breath. You have instructed us to label thoughts. My problem in using your system is that my old method appears to get in the way. I feel that I'm labeling too extensively to develop the concentration levels required for jhanic experience. Again, possibly not. Any suggestions you might have re-labeling would be appreciated. Or any additional discussion you feel is relevant. I feel that this confusion on my part is denying me the full benefits of your method. Well, I've said already I don't have any methods, huh? all the Buddha's methods. So, yes, it's uh, very important to have clarity on that point. Labeling is only necessary if the distracting thoughts are solid, which means that they take one off on a tangent, that one wanders off with the mind, and it takes a long time to come back that at first, usually, one doesn't even know one is off somewhere, then, knowing it, one can label. Or, one actually knows that one is off, but the thought is quite um, distinct enough in order to give it a name. Only then, labeling is necessary. If we have what we call neighborhood concentration which means that we have the feeling we're on the breath, and at the same time there are some wispy thoughts in the background. Labeling is a distraction, and we should not no longer do it. At that moment, we need a little more determination and willpower to let the mind and the breath become one. That's as far as labeling goes. But now, the problem that is addressed here is that the old method gets in the way. The old method being noting, arising and ceasing, or arising and passing, arising and ceasing of all phenomena. And noting examining the arising and ceasing of phenomena and noting this process, which would mean constant labeling, wouldn't it? So one would never have a chance to let the mind become quiet. So this constant labeling, which is also mentioned here, I feel that I'm labeling too extensively to develop the concentration levels required for jhanic experience. Constant labeling and having no um, alternative, which this method apparently doesn't provide, um, doesn't make it possible for the mind to become quiet and calm. Although I have been told that one can get so much Dukkha from that that one can get a lot of insight. (laughs) (laughs) Several people have mentioned that. So uh, that's quite possible that the dukkha which comes from that really brings a lot of insight. But it isn't actually the way that the Buddha taught, if you remember what this sutta says. And it isn't the only sutta. And also what is said about right concentration, samadhi, samadhi. Again, it's the same thing. So... um Yes, if the old method gets in the way, what to do? That's, of course, um, understandable if one has practiced for quite some time in a particular way that the habit of it keeps coming up all the time. Maybe what could be helpful in this case, not using the breath, because having used the breath as an anchor, it says, and then watching the arising and passing away of phenomena, so noting this process, is breath and labeling, constant labeling. So maybe whoever has, had, has this problem, using either a colored disc instead of the breath, if that person has any visual... Uh, ability or the loving kindness meditation, which also brings one have access to the first jhana. So maybe letting go of the breath for a trial and just forgetting it. Method is method by any name, doesn't matter which one we use. And if none of these, then maybe the sweeping will help and then seeing if the concentration will arise without all this noting and also without the labeling. In the loving-kindness meditation, there is a great chance for concentration without labeling because the mind is a little busy. It has something to address anyway of people and feelings. So possibly, if that works, to do the loving-kindness meditation and become aware whether there is any delightful sensation and then use that. The warmth that comes from loving-kindness or expansiveness, there are many possibilities. So I would suggest letting everything go, the whole thing, so that the old habit doesn't enter and give that a go, give that a try. And if that doesn't work either, come and have an interview. And we'll discuss it further. Because it's important to get the meditation together. Can there sometimes be a lot of eye movement, optical eyes, not the self along with the sensations in first Jhana. Well, it's not useful. It's not conducive to calm. In fact, if one does it too long, it starts hurting. It's um, probably a um, result of being excited about it. Maybe having had it not very often, and there it is, and now... The excitement starts. Not to pay any attention to the eyes. Not at all. Just pay full attention to the sensation. If we don't pay any attention to the eyes, there's no way they can bother us, and then we won't know whether they're moving or not. We only know that they're moving if our concentration has wavered wave and is off the sensation long as we're on the sensation, we couldn't possibly know. So if the mind has a tendency to revert back to that eye movement, take it off, back to the sensation, and then there's no problem. If letting go of diversity, similar to letting go of dualistic view or experience. Well, what we were talking about by letting go of diversity was to gain access to the fifth jhana, to the infinity of space. And it certainly has that same connotation that the letting go of a dualistic view has, dualistic view or dualistic experience, it becomes a oneness experience and it breaks the boundaries that we put around ourselves and all things. What is the connection between diversity, dualism and oneness? Well, let's put it this way. Oneness and dualism are opposites. So maybe if you say that opposites have a connection, then they have a connection. They're opposed to each other. They're exact opposites. And diversity, in the in the way the Buddha uses it in the instructions for the fifth jhana, is meant that we actually realize what there is in diversity, what there are. There are people and houses, villages are mentioned, towns, trees and forests, mountains and meadows, rivers and oceans, clouds and the sky. So the diversity is taken note of in order to surmount it, to go past it, to no longer um, keep it in mind, but recognize the fact that the mind can go past it. Now that experience, when the mind can go past it, would give one the ability at other times not to have dualistic experiences, but to have oneness experiences, even without going into meditation because eventually the mind becomes imbued with that and eventually the mind looks at it that way. Naturally, there are times when it can't do that because it is required to respond in the way that the world responds. And that's necessary. And the Buddha did too. The Buddha also responded in the way the world responded. But at other times, when that wasn't necessary, then one can let go of that and feel completely embedded in the whole of creation. So the letting go of diversity, the knowing that it is there, as far as we're concerned, and letting go of it brings one to that unity-oneness experience, so that we can at other times also let go of our dualistic view. It takes a fair bit of practice and also some definite insight that this diversity is an optical illusion and a mind-made reality and not an absolute reality. So when that has arisen, that insight, it becomes much easier. Oh, starts here. Last week I described an experience in which I came close to the edge of the precipice of letting go of ego. In the past few days I have recoiled from this experience. It is as if the ego is struggling harder to be. I've been besieged by all five hindrances simultaneously. No, I don't believe that. (laughs) Possibly one after the other. (laughs) With a vengeance. Demons have surrounded me. The ego is showing me power I have never seen. Yet I know the power comes... From momentum or habit, not substance, since the ego is no more substantial than anything else I can find. And so I stand apart from the ego's activity as an observer. I tried dealing with the hindrances according to the antidotes you spoke of, but I was still overwhelmed. I then looked to the six roots, and when reflection on the three wholesome roots, sorry, when reflecting, On the three wholesome roads, the battle quieted. Thank you for stressing and repeating this part of the teaching. Still not satisfied, I thought of what I might ask you. My first question was based on wanting to get rid of my dukkha. Wrong view. Thought again, and my second question was based on the achievement quest. Wrong view again. The mind quietened and then let go, and I realized the correct question is, how can I give this situation the love and attention it needs? Then I realized I already had by letting go. The question had become the answer. Still, I would be very grateful if you would comment on this experience and thereby shed some light on it. I'll answer that one first. The five hindrances are in everyone. And as we even have a Nibbani experience, the very first one, the only thing that is totally removed is the fifth one, the skeptical doubt. Greed and hate which are sensual desire and ill will, are not even touched by the first Nibbanic experience. And neither is restlessness and worry. Sloth and torpor is not something that is considered a fatter. It is more considered a momentary difficulty. So all the other hindrances, are still with us even after the first experience of Nibbana. So what to say if we even haven't experienced Nibbana? And also, I would like to point out that if we realize those hindrances within ourselves, and that's a very good thing to do, and realize that not even the first Nibbanic experience changes any of that except the skeptical doubt, we will no longer ever again wander about the idiosyncrasies and absurdities that happen in humanity. The five hindrances make them happen. Everybody's got them. So then, since we all have them, in the hurry and flurry of daily life, People are very often not at all aware that they've got them. And when something raises its head, which isn't quite so, one is very often inclined to blame an outside trigger. Some person did something. Some person said something. Some person looked at me in the wrong way. Some person didn't answer my question properly. And then, of course, the hindrance of ill will arises, and we think it's totally justified. Then, at that time, of course, we should remember our little jack-in-the-box. We should really remember that, and not forget that he really likes to come out as quickly and as often as possible. So... In the hurry and flurry of everyday life, while the five hindrances are within us, we're often not aware that they make us act in these peculiar ways. Peculiar meaning that they make us act in ways which are undoubtedly going to produce unhappiness. There's no doubt about it. We know it already before we start. we, We know that this is going to bring unhappiness, and yet we do it five hindrances now we sit here two weeks already all is nice and quiet meditation is going on and then one knows that one has a five hindrances which in the outside world in our daily life we have them just as much but we can't really see it that clearly because there's always something happening. If we're talking, or we're going out, or somebody's coming, or we are actually responding to one of the five hindrances, mostly greed or hate. Here, when we start responding to one of them, we feel it very strongly. And all of a sudden, the mind says, Goodness, I've got all five hindrances. And they haven't um, increased at all. They're exactly the same as they've always been, but they're more noticeable. And that's very good. That's excellent. Because now there's no question about them. I've got them. But we can immediately also infer, everybody else got them too, the non-returner, the third experience of Nibbana, is the first one that gets rid of greed and hate, which is one step before full enlightenment. So, what to say about the rest of the world? Now, the ego can be likened to the five hindrances they're actually synonymous because that's what ego does it has those five hindrances and we call it ego so it's the same thing and and being an observer of these activities that the ego is having as is said here is also very good because when we are an observer the whole thing breaks apart we don't have to continue the observer is no longer the doer or the thinker so it dissolves Okay. the thing to do dealing with the hindrances according to the antidotes but the first and foremost importance is substitution with the opposite this is what the Buddha taught over and over again substitution with the opposite so if there is craving for something what's the opposite what do we do we try and give away a present give somebody something instead of thinking about the thing that I'd want I'm going to start thinking about that which I would like to give away. It takes immediately the whole thing onto a different level. Now, that's exactly what is said here on looking at the three wholesome roots. When there's hate, we substitute with, if love isn't possible, compassion, or an understanding, an acceptance, whatever it may be. And the three wholesome roots, of course, boil down to two. Because they boil down to love and generosity. There's nothing much we can do about the delusion of the me, other than giving ourselves a pep talk. That we've already understood that this is a wrong view, and that we just haven't experienced it yet. And seeing that may also help, quite possible. But the main thing is to, as quickly as possible, substitute. And that, being an observer, is very possible to do, because one's watching it. But then, he was still not satisfied. So, wanting to get rid of dukkha, Yes, wanting to get rid of Dukkha produces more Dukkha, doesn't it? Because wanting it, that just produces the Dukkha. That's the whole problem, isn't it? So instead of wanting to get rid of Dukkha, looking at the Dukkha with a smile, saying, there you are, old friend. Hadn't seen you last week. What happened? And uh, I heard that you are the best teacher So what are you teaching me? And then, maybe have another conversation and saying, I really realize that this is one of the characteristics of existence. And therefore, having Dukkha just shows that I exist. That's all. That's all there is to Dukkha. So then, having greeted Dukkha as an old friend... And one's best teacher, if you remember, I said that any teacher that you have is not always constantly available. But Dukkha always is. It's always around. And goes home with you, goes on holiday, goes anywhere you want to go. And looking at it that way, it might really relieve it. Now, of course, looking at it as wrong view was also right. There was nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But maybe those other things will reinforce that. Second question was based on the achievement quest. Wrong view again. Okay, I want something. eh? Dukkha, more Dukkha. And then, the mind quieted and let go and I realized the correct question is how can I give this situation the love and attention it needs? Well, the Dukkha is greeted as a friend, and Achievement Quest is more Dukkha, so we've got another friend there, and so you can give it all the love and attention in that situation, and really learning from it. Because Achievement Quest means I want. And I want is nothing other but really disturbing one's inner being, no matter what we want. And even if it's the most wonderful thing we want, let's say we want Nibbana, whatever that may mean to us, it disturbs the whole inner being. So we can learn a great deal from that, which I think a person has. Then I realized I already had by letting go. The question had become the answer. That's right. So I have... Commented. Now comes something else. Also, is there any redeemable quality to a stubborn will? Can it be put to good use, or should it be thrown out? I've been contemplating water and air, and doing loving kindness to soften it. To soften the stubborn will, I should think. Huh? Not the water and the air. Yeah, the stubborn will must be getting softened. Okay, a stubborn stubborn will can be very useful, if we call it willpower. And that can be stubbornness, but stubbornness on a different level. Stubbornness is usually considered to be the way that we do not allow new things to enter into us. We're stubbornly hanging on to our own views and opinions, and nothing new can enter. Well, that's stubbornness on the negative side. Obviously, that doesn't work here, because everything we're supposed to know and do is new. But if we have a stubborn will and do not use it to hang on to everything that we've always known and done and also reinforcing personal opinion which obviously hasn't been done here because it was seen quite clearly that there was wrong view then the strength of the will power which is being used can take one a long way it's uh, something that brings power to one's effort so it's very useful as long as it isn't something that makes us stick to the old things. And that's stubbornness. But when it's willpower, it's extremely useful. So, to soften it, I think it probably has something to do with the fact that um, the writer of this recoiled from the experience of letting go of the ego. And the stubbornness arose that I really don't want to let go of the ego. That's fine. We usually say to that, that if we're standing under an apple tree, and we'd really like to eat one of those apples, and they're quite stuck on the tree, and not even ripe, it's totally useless to say, Dear Apple Tree, Please ripen the apple and let it fall because I want to eat it. <laughs> it's totally useless. But when it's ready and it's ripe and it falls, it's no use saying, look, I don't want any apples right now. Just keep it. It falls off anyway. So when the mind is ripe and mature, it will go over that edge and having seen that precipice may actually help to have a new attempt at it. And every time, it doesn't work. It doesn't matter. It's the apple just isn't right. It doesn't matter at all. And there's nothing to worry about the five hindrances. Everybody's got them. And seeing them is great. It's the best thing one can do. And inferring what it means for humanity and having compassion for oneself compassion for the difficulty of being a human being and thereby learning the compassion for everybody else because everybody's got that problem of the five hindrances. whether they know it or not makes no difference some people might not even know that they've got them or they might think they've got one of them but Everybody's got them. So the compassion is another helpmate to make one feel more at ease when one sees what's the makeup of a human being. A makeup of a human being with the ego intact. That's what the makeup is. And so when the mind is ready, it's able to let go. And until then, it doesn't really want to. So it's not useful to push against that recoiling from letting go of the ego. It's much more useful to investigate, to investigate with real strength the five aggregates. One is body and four are mind. Sense, consciousness, feeling, perception, mental formation. The contact we make with the senses, the feeling which arises, which most people don't notice, the labeling, the perception, and then the reaction. And body might already be a past matter. Maybe that's already clear, that I'm not the body and neither is the body mine. Or, if not, investigate. But the four parts of mind, where that person sits that's recoiling, the person sits that has the hindrances, where the person sits that has wrong view and understands that that there is wrong view, all that is the most important thing to investigate. And as we investigate that, one of the things that I have said and which I like to repeat because it's important and may be helpful is to know the experience we all have one experience after another but where is the experience except that we are thinking him or her up so that kind of investigation brings the mind to a moment of truth eventually maybe not today and tomorrow but it brings the mind to a moment of truth where the mind says yes, of course and then one can let go when the mind not only says of course because it's understood but because it's felt there is nobody that's experiencing anything it's all mind made all we have are the experiences now we can try that out, we can do that as a contemplation and we have to do it many times. It doesn't work immediately. So one of the things which is also important here is compassion for oneself. I'd like more help in knowing how to stop at feeling so that new Negativities don't accumulate in the mind. I'd also like help in cleaning up the vast negative debris already accumulated in my mind. Seems to be the same problem. So many volleys of old angers and resentments came up in meditation in rapid fire succession, that I was stunned to see what a trash heap I was sitting on. <coughs> yes, that's very good. It's a very good experience. It's excellent. It's the five illnesses that we're sitting on. Or that are sitting in us or whatever we like to say about it. So, Help in knowing how to stop at feeling so that new negativities don't accumulate in the mind. No, that's not the way to do that. Um, That's an extra special kind of um, exercise, so to say. But what we first need to do is that when the reaction is known to be negative, to immediately find the opposite. And find it not superficially saying, oh yes, I remember, I'm not supposed to hate, so I better love. That doesn't work. But to find the opposite in the object or subject that we are hating or having greed for. So we need to find the opposite there. Now let's say it's a person. Most of the time we have problems with persons. It's our most uh, most common uh, problems. So if it's a person and the negative emotion arises towards a person, seeing in the person the same dukkha that oneself has, and having been able to give oneself compassion, being able to give it to that person. It's one of the easiest ways of Being able to have a positive reaction to whoever comes around. Everybody's got Dukkha. Whether they smile or not makes no difference. Or whether they know that they have Dukkha, or whether they actually mention it, it makes no difference. Everybody's got Dukkha. Just think of the body. How can anybody get away without Dukkha, having this kind of body? It's not possible. Tiny little kids have lots of body dukkha. They get born with it. Scream their heads off. Tummy hurts. We all have it. But we all have also mental dukkha. So, it's the best way is to recognize one's own dukkha. Not putting it down to a certain situation. That's that if syndrome. If a certain situation were different, then I wouldn't have Dukkha. Nonsense. There is no such thing that if we can get out of one situation, we're going to get into the next one. Everybody's done it. So, it's not one situation which provides us with Dukkha. It's existence which provides us with Dukkha. Existence is Dukkha. Everything that we can touch with our senses is impermanent everything that we can know is impermanent so how can it not be Dukkha but we don't need to suffer from that if we see it properly we see it as the base for our spiritual development and I mean it very seriously that Dukkha is our best teacher so seeing one's own Dukkha and not having that if syndrome if only i could change this one thing and that person wouldn't stand in my way i'd be all right nothing like it then the compassion for oneself will make it possible to have compassion for everyone they're all everyone have it everyone is like that and even though some people might have lots of money, might have uh, uh, fame, might have um, knowledge. There is nobody without Dukkha. And then sometimes people wonder why some famous people, particularly after they're dead, have uh, quite a lot of things written about them which are by no means favorable. Well, they have just as much dukkha as we do. And they try to get out of that dukkha in the same absurd way that we do. So all these things, these um, gossip columns and all the rest of it, they're all about dukkha. That's all. So compassion. Um, To stop at feeling, at feeling the unpleasantness. Yeah, the negativities would be coming because of the unpleasantness. It's very helpful to recognize that the sense-contact has brought about a feeling and has brought about an unpleasant feeling and therefore the negative reaction arises. It's uh, very good to find that out. But in order to first smooth the way for practice, substitute with compassion. Because as long as that way isn't smooth, It's not possible to just stop at feeling. The mind gets too easily agitated. So then, having done that, we can try and see without reaction, is it possible to know the unpleasant feeling and not label and not react? Not suppressing. Just knowing the unpleasant feeling. It's quite difficult, actually. And one does need a calm and collected mind for it. So a substitution in the first place. Now, cleaning up the vast amount of negative debris already accumulated in the mind. Cleaning up the vast amount of debris accumulated in the mind. The sweeping is designed for that because one has to let go. So it's very important to do that, if this is the case as written here, several times a day. Not just once, but several times a day. Letting go again and again and again. Now, cleaning up that which has accumulated, what it does to us, this accumulation, is that we have constant access to the negativity because it's sort of habit-ridden, the mind. And since it's been in there a long time, probably, and to, what says a great amount, it's always coming to the fore. So all we can do is substitute over and over and over. And having done that many a time, then the positive, might take pride of place, or at least have as much room in the mind as a negative. So it's a substitution over and over again. If we do that, then the positive aspects of our reaction will be also easily accessible. And as we become easily accessible, And here, the other thing that is said here, that so many volleys of old anger and resentment came up in meditation in rapid-fire succession that I was stunned to see what a trash heap I'm sitting on, I was sitting on. Again, it's the same thing. In daily life, we either find uh, the trigger and blame that for our negativity. It must be due to the boss, to the partner, It must be due to the situation, to the weather, to whatever we pick out. But here, we can't do that. We're looking inside of ourselves. And there, we have also a quietness, where all this stuff can come up. And seeing it come up is excellent. Not only for knowing that we have the hindrances, but also for bringing up the... um, Urgency to practice. Having seen what comes up in oneself, one can take it for granted that this is there all the time. We haven't added to it while we've been here. On the contrary, if anything, we have diminished it a bit. Through the loving-kindness meditation, through our efforts in concentration. If we've done anything at all, we have diminished the hindrances a bit. We haven't um, made them bigger. So knowing them to be like this and seeing the dukkha that produces should give us a real cause for practicing and knowing that to get out of dukkha, there's only one way that we can finally and totally get out of Dukkha. And that is to get out of the illusion of me. Because if there's nobody there, nobody can have Dukkha. Dukkha remains. Dukkha is. It's part and parcel of creation. But if there's nobody sitting inside, there's nobody there to have it. One knows it, but one doesn't have it. So, if that is clear enough in the Dukkha, which arises from the negativities, then one becomes committed to the practice. Other than that, it's good to see it, it's good to know it, and to realize that all this is always there. That we just don't pay enough attention, and very often, don't want to know about it. Here we do want to know about it. I'm trying to become more aware of and develop the qualities the Buddha talks about in the loving-kindness discourse. I know it's important not to pretend to oneself or suppress unpleasant parts, but is it all right to behave one way and feel another? For instance, to act generously when you don't feel generous. I'm muddled about it, because being nice to someone, and inside myself struggling with feelings of dislike for them, does feel very hypocritical. Or am I just complicating something simple like act first and hope the feeling will follow? Well, yes, that's a possibility that not through the action so much it's more through the thinking the, uh, the thought will bring about the feeling but if the act is generous and the thought is not It doesn't help. One is doing that in order to find favor with someone else. One isn't doing it because one is practicing. So that's no way to deal with that. That is hypocritical. Acting without thinking it. That's definitely not the way to do it. But if one doesn't feel generous and thinks that this is the wrong way to, to feel. I really don't want to feel like that. I really would like to feel very generous. Let me try and see if I can actually want to help this person towards whom I have no feelings of generosity, only dislike. Can I change my way of thinking? And if I can then change my way of thinking, I am actually practicing, and I can then go ahead and do whatever it is that I'd like to do to be generous, even though there's still that inner resistance, but there's a trying of changing the thought process because of the understanding that it's only detrimental to oneself if one feels hateful. If we feel hateful and act differently, but don't think differently, that's hypocritical. If we feel hateful and try, try very hard to feel loving, whether it works or not, it will work a little, but if it doesn't work completely, and then act accordingly, that's practicing. So, just the outer act is usually done because we want to impress somebody else because we know very well what we're feeling so we want to just show as if and that doesn't work because actually what happens from that or what could happen doesn't have to but could happen from that that we dislike even more because we're being pushed into a corner into a situation which we don't want so we might dislike even more We have to change the thinking process in order to change the emotional process. And that's our practice. Um, This evening, I'm going to start with a very interesting question, namely one I can't answer. I'll read it to you. In introductory Tibetan books, I... Came across the five Buddha families in Tantra practice, giving rise to 1. Mirror like wisdom, 2. Wisdom of all encompassing space, 3. All enriching wisdom, 4. Discriminating awareness wisdom, and 5. All accomplishing wisdom. Could you elaborate these wisdoms with examples? Wisdom of all encompassing space seems to be related to 5th, 6th jhanas. The rest I'm not clear at all. Well, neither am I. I've never heard of them. In the Pali Canon, which we use in the Theravada tradition, there has never been any mention of such five wisdoms. If it is important to find out what it means, all I can suggest is, if the book is available here, to bring me the book. And if I read the chapter, maybe I'll get an idea what it all refers to. Uh, It probably refers to something that we might use, but call something entirely different. We don't have five wisdoms. We've got one, but not five. So I have no idea. I have nothing I can say other than that. So if it's important, we can... I'll have a look at the book. This morning, this seems to be a bad day for questions, this morning during your Dhamma talk my mind suddenly felt saturated and I couldn't take in another word. Actually, it was a very unpleasant feeling and it still lingers in my head so I'm finding it quite impossible to think about or practice anything. Actually, I'd like to swim in the ocean or sunbathe or go for a long drive in my car. Well, that's not unusual. I'm not going to ask who else. (laughs) What would be the wise way to deal with such feelings? I suppose they come from having been trying too hard but they took me by surprise and I'd like to get rid of them as soon as possible. The answer lies in the last part of of the question. I'd like to get rid of unpleasant feelings as soon as possible. (laughs) The quicker, the better. The way to deal with it is to look at the dukkha and to be fully conversant with it. This is dukkha and it comes... And catches me by surprise. I didn't expect it because yesterday I didn't have that kind of dukkha and maybe last night I didn't and maybe tomorrow I won't but right now I've got it. So if I have dukkha the best thing to do is to look at it and not suffer from it but to accept it. This is the way it is at the moment and It is only so because there is some sort of either craving or resistance in the mind. So it could help, and it would help, if it's possible, to find the resistance or the craving. Both are the same thing. And uh, one is just getting rid of, and the other one is trying to get. And if one can find that, then of course, One can drop it. And then the dukkha goes away. And if one can't find it, then one will have to accept the fact that dukkha does come and that there is the usual reaction to it. I'd like to get rid of it. And uh, what can I do? I could go sunbathe. I could go swim in the ocean. I could go for a long drive in my car. How long will that take care of my Dukkha? It certainly will look after Dukkha for a little while, but uh, stay too long in the sun and you get new Dukkha. (laughs) And uh, swim in the ocean and get bitten by something and you've got new Dukkha. Or maybe none of these things happen, you come back. And then, but to find a new way of getting out of dukkha. Moving away from dukkha is only the last resort. Sometimes one can't do anything else. The Buddha actually said that. There are such occasions when things become really dangerous that one has to move away from it. But it's a very last resort. And there's nothing dangerous here, really. So, the thing to do is to really look at it and then see that dukkha does not just arise in major situations where there's really... um, their t- touch upon one's life situation, everybody knows that's Dukkha. But Dukkha arises in these small matters, unpleasant feelings. That's Dukkha. And another thing one can do, of course, after having investigated the Dukkha and maybe having found the cause for it and maybe being able to let go, one can also while the unpleasant feeling is still there, put put one's attention on the unpleasant feeling and not own it. It's just a feeling. Now, that is not so difficult because we've had so many feelings already in this lifetime and will have so many more and maybe that will help us to understand that we don't have to own each one. And we don't have to react to each one. We should react when we choose to react. So this is um, we'll a real dukkha situation which could give rise to a, quite a bit of insight if that is, if, that was, if one uses it that the way. I find it hard to be mindful when involved with words. You do not discourage taking notes, writing and reading in a retreat. How does one keep from getting lost in discursive thought? Well, my personal experience in writing and reading is that unless I'm totally mindful I neither know what I'm reading nor do I know what I'm writing. I've got to pay full attention. The same goes for speaking. I've got to pay full attention. Total concentration, total mindfulness. I couldn't possibly write a note or take take notes of what I'm hearing if I wasn't fully with it, that's mindfulness, being fully with it. When one is finished with taking the note or writing something down, seems to be something else again, when one is finished with that, the mindfulness can then again revert to mindfulness on the body. Reading should, of course, be confined to anything that concerns the things that we're doing here and not anything outside of that. But if one, for instance, reads a page and isn't totally mindful, one's got to start at the top of the page again and has no idea what's written there. One could never even tell another person what one has just read. That's why so many people don't remember the titles and the authors of the books they've read. One's got to pay full attention. And taking notes of the things that one deems important is a very good memory bridge. When I was studying in the Buddhist discourses, and I have already given that sort of uh, suggestion, I used to make telegram style notes of the essence of either a page or a chapter. I did that for years. How else would one remember? Oh, maybe there are people who can remember just by reading something. I'm not one of them. Telegram-style notes of the essence of the teaching and then learning those by heart and then practicing them and then only going to the next page or next chapter. All of that requires complete attention, absolute mindfulness, real concentration, Concentration in the sense of being with what one is doing and nothing else. How can we take notes about something one hears if one isn't totally immersed in it? Where would the mind go while it's taking notes? If words... Are difficult one is probably far too much occupied with one's feelings there has to be a balance harmony between heart and mind both have to operate on a harmonious level We've got both. We've got logical, analytical thinking, understanding, ideation, creativity in the mind. And we have the heart with its feelings, with its emotions. We have to purify both. We've been talking about the purification of both. And we have to use them both. There has to be a harmonious balance. If we just stay with the mind, we are what is commonly called a head tripper. Well, obviously that's not good enough. But if we're only concerned with our feelings, we are most likely constantly emoting, and that's not very peaceful. So we need to make a balance between the two. We have to understand and realize and words are not the truth but they are the finger that's pointing to the moon but not the moon itself. Since most people need a pointer Words are elected. There's nothing else. That's it. And the Buddha used them to great advantage. So, if there's something wrong with words that makes one have discursive thought, one needs to investigate whether one is too much occupied with emotions and can't therefore not take in that which comes through our mental ability. Our mental ability is very important. Obviously, our feeling ability is also important. That's why we do loving-kindness meditation every evening. But our mental ability is extremely important. It is the discernment in the mind, and it's also the concentration, the mindfulness, the one-pointedness, all of that takes place as a mental formation. And all of that is being pointed to with words. When the Buddha was sitting under the Bodhi tree, what meditation method did he use to become enlightened? Is it possible to use only one meditation method to reach enlightenment, for instance, watching the breath? Well, I'll answer the second part first. Yes, of course. Any method that brings calm and insight is fine. I usually say, and I'll say so again, if our mind becomes concentrated, Looking at a little green button with red dots, that's the right method for the person who becomes concentrated on it. Certainly we can use the breath, but it has to be that we are actually getting to apana samadhi, full concentration, summer samadhi. The Buddha did not use a method. He had finished with the methods. He did the jhanas. The jhanas are no longer a method. The breath is the method to become concentrated. And so is loving kindness. And so is the sleeping. And so is the color kasina. And so are dozens of other methods, any one of them, the walking meditation, anything, to become one pointed. The Buddha was one pointed when he sat under the bodhi tree, so his mind went the natural way. It went along the natural pathway for a concentrated mind, and that's the meditative absorption. We talk about methods when we're trying. When it's been done, it's no longer a method, it's meditation. Is that quite clear? I hope so. What do you recommend? if one has difficulty being with a partner who does not meditate or have a spiritual practice. Well, that difficulty arises quite often. Quite often we find that one partner only meditates and goes on a spiritual path. And if there isn't enough, loving-kindness, unconditional love, then the partnership usually breaks up. So there has to be that, particularly from the one who's practicing. The one who's practicing is the one who is obligated to do the best he or she can Because otherwise, he or she wouldn't be practicing. Only if we do the best we can, are we practicing. So, with loving kindness towards the other person, recognizing their dukkha, accepting it, feeling like a mother towards the other person, all these are possibilities of having harmony within the partnership even without having the togetherness on a spiritual path if there is enough loving kindness from the one who practices it's also possible that eventually one day the other one will ask or will say that one has changed And maybe ask how one has done that. It's a possibility. It's not a guarantee. Usually, the people we live with know us best. And because they're not contented with themselves and their failings, they're also not contented with us and our failings. So we have constant discontent. And that can only be bridged. There's no other way to bridge it except through loving kindness and compassion. And that is a practice. And maybe I should repeat at this stage that all the things we are talking about and all the things we're practicing are for practice none of them have the connotation that we are already perfect if we were what are we doing here we really might as well go in sunbase if we are already perfect but seeing that we probably are, are quite aware of the fact that we are not we mustn't expect that any of the practices that we do will turn out perfectly or that there's any requirement for perfection. The Buddha's instructions were a practice path, And he gave the instructions from beginning to end. So one starts practicing right there where one needs to if one has certain abilities already maybe one doesn't need to practice that but others might be totally lacking so one has to work on them the same goes for loving kindness and compassion it's a practice and the more we practice it the easier it becomes and we must never mistake the surface Friendliness that we might do out of a desire to be liked for a real love real love can be felt by others real lovingness is an ambience it's an emanation an emanation which everyone feels friendliness politeness is very nice but it must not be confused with lovingness. Friendliness and politeness are on the one hand our way of um, dealing with each other in an acceptable manner but on the other hand they are also ways and means to be appreciated. So Beware of the confusion which comes in one's own mind. It doesn't matter what others think, but what comes in one's own mind, thinking, I have that, when it's nothing but friendliness and politeness for a very ulterior motive. It means one's got to really make a research project out of oneself. People love having research projects. They even get paid for that. Well, this is totally unpaid, of course. But it brings enormous benefits. Looking into oneself on a very objective basis, not as if This is me and me has to react and me is a certain way. No, there's this person which I want to get to know. And then objectively we can get to know ourselves. And then we'll know whether we're actually loving other people really loving them for no reason at all only because we have practiced it, have practiced that heart quality, or whether it's all in the head. And the difference for oneself is enormous, because that what's in the heart doesn't break down so easily. That what's in the head breaks down very easily. Anything happens to um, obstruct that friendliness and politeness, and it vanishes. So, here in a home situation with a partner, that's the practice. There is no other. One, of course, also needs to know how much, the, how great the difficulty is. If the difficulties are overwhelming, one may not be able to deal with it. If one is not able to deal with overwhelming difficulties, one may have to step aside and then admit that one wasn't mature enough yet to deal with that difficulty, not blaming the other person for being so difficult that one couldn't possibly do anything else. That would be also another possibility as a last resort. It's certainly not one's first attempt. I have just realized one of the reasons I have found it so difficult to let go of self is because of the belief that without self, the one who comments and explains everything How can I remember what happens, especially during meditation? Since words are my primary means of noting and storing in memory, I rely on self to remember. So I realize my attachment is to words. Now that I have brought this out in the light, I cannot believe in such an absurdity. (laughs) Care to comment? Um... Yes, it's quite true. To be, it's difficult to let go of self because there's this belief that when one hasn't got a self, then there's nobody there who will explain anything. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Buddha didn't have a self. He explained everything in the most minute detail. And he explained it to others, and he explained it to one, and he explained it to thousands, and he's explaining it to us. So nothing could be further from the truth. What we need to um, also realize at this point of understanding is that the commentary and the explanation and the remembering are all mental formations. They're just other words for mental formation. Mental formation is sort of a, um, a collective word for everything that goes on as soon as the mind starts really operating after sense contact, feeling, and perception. So, commentary, explanation, and remembrance that are mentioned here, remembering what happened during meditation all mental formations. So if we have found out or are interested in finding out whether the mental formations have a me sitting in it and we find that that they don't, then we know. We can explain and comment and remember just as well without me. By the way, on the first step, to Nibbana, if one actually um, Accomplishes that letting go of self for that moment It doesn't uh, Eliminate self What it does is it eliminates wrong view We never again have the wrong view of ourselves We cannot have it, but the feeling of self is still there. And we can just get back to the right view by putting our mind on it and remembering that we actually know. So, it's perfectly alright to let go of self because everything else is going to keep on going. So, self doesn't have to remember. It's Memory that remembers. And uh, actually, what ha- the last sentence says. now that I've brought it out in the light, I cannot believe in such an absurdity. This is very much what happens when one has been able to let go for that one decisive moment called the path moment of that self-illusion um, afterwards not only is there relief but there's also quite often laughter. Not because it's so funny it isn't funny at all, but because one laughs about one's absurd attachment to something that was never there so one has it's not loud laughter it's usually sort of a, a little bit of amusement I should say and the amusement is about this absurdity and then of course it also creates a great deal of compassion because one realizes that the whole world runs around with that absurdity hanging over their backs pushing them and pressuring them and making life terribly difficult. I think uh, in the discourse that we are studying, Pada Pada comes back to this uh, question of self tomorrow and uh, investigates it again from every conceivable angle without coming to any proper conclusion. So um, the Buddha again tries to tell him. So we'll see whether that's any help tomorrow. We can stand up and stretch our legs.